The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Good to see you back for the second part of my conversation with Takashita-san about the Summer Olympics of 2020 and the likelihood if they're going to or not be held in 2021 and what it really means for Japan and its culture going forward. Unfortunately, um, China, which we were all hoping that would be westernized in a positive sense by introducing a lot of capitalism, utilize the economy to justify their old ideology. We can see that in Hong Kong. So that's very, very alarming. Welcome to the Mentor TV podcast and stay curious with Patricia Falco-Becali. I'm an investor, I invest in companies, um, and I invest in the stock market as well. And what I look at is what are the mega trends? What, what has been basically established over the last few years and what has been pushed or pushed up or pushed down also due to uh, that severe corona crisis? What would you say are the mega trends right now? Well, I'd say um, one big trend that we have to look at is very unfortunate fight over hegemony between China and the United States. We all know that in the past, you know, uh, 100 years, uh, especially in the past 20 years, um, the globalization has played the biggest role in advancing our economies and solving all sorts of problems, including the poverty problems of the world. A significant improvement, especially from like 1960s. We all know that. But this, this one strongest factor called globalization would be set back, especially when you have, you know, like uh, protectionism that comes on. And this hegemony of the United States and China would be the ultimate example of trade, communication, and eventually finance as well. So this is going to, it may pose, you know, opportunity, in fact, for, you know, countries like Japan, but in the long run, from a global context that you ask, the biggest problem that we'll be seeing is... The, the, this battleground, which may really hurt various issues which have built. Now, unfortunately, um, China, which we were all hoping that would be westernized in a positive sense by introducing a lot of capitalism, utilize the economy to justify their old ideology. We can see that in Hong Kong. So that's very, very alarming. Um, and obviously the free world has to fight that off, which is extremely unfortunate because we all know that, you know, the biggest engine of growth in the past two decades was China. So I think it's a very, very unfortunate situation that we have right now. Um, but that is another big, big negative issues that we all have to be, you know, um, be aware of, I think. Yeah, I think that's an interesting what you what you mentioned. This this chicken and egg situation where you know the globe needs really the growth engine China, but at the same time, when it comes to many values, how they generate the growth, uh, it's just not at the level playing field with the rest of the world. So it is very very tricky to to find a balance and really solution. True. Um... A lot of, um, I'd say, um, there's a lot of argument that's going on, especially in supply chain management. Um, and people are saying from just-in-time system, which is uh, which was created. Jitkaizen, Jitkaizen. That's right. right. Efficiency, <laughs> quickness, you know. All these wonderful, you know, just-in-time. They're saying, now people are starting to say, let's change JIT. Into, and this is why Toyota came up with a wonderful earnings upward revision just the other day. 
Why? Because they were able to procure enough semiconductors, which its arch rival Honda wasn't able to do. Mm -hmm. And why was uh, Toyota able to do that? Because they switched there just in time to just in case from JIT to JIC, which worked out eloquently for them. But yes, this is an example of a success. But if you, for example, look at you know other countries or other issues, it's not that easy because stacking up inventory, Toyota can afford to do that. But stacking up inventory means, especially at times when demand is unclear, is a very dangerous thing to do from the management perspective. So JIC isn't really JIC in the sense, it's JIC against China. That's what we're, I think, really seeing, and that's what we will be seeing uh, from here onwards. Um, so, yeah, I think it will be, as you pointed out, will be a very, very tricky play from here onwards because the economic agenda is always going to be interfered. It is always interfered, but this time around, I think it will be much more densely interfered by geopolitical situations and politics uh, as a whole. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And you know, just in case, I love that approach. And I just wonder how do you, which, which is only about risk mitigation. So you try to really hedge your basket for whatever outcome you draw the scenario. So just in case you're ready with that kind of strategy, but it's very difficult with um, with a country and with the track record of that country. I, I can totally see that. And when you talk about supply chain management, it's interesting because we are just doing due diligence on a company that is looking exactly at that, at the optimization of supply chain. Uh, really trying to real-time with the data set they have, ascertain the, the, um, the balance between supply and demand and then setting prices on every stage of that supply chain. And this kind of thing is, uh, is extremely important because the margin of error of having too much supply for the potential case of demand is just costing companies billions of dollars. So that's, that's a huge issue. Coming back to the megatrends, uh, Takashita-san, it's interesting that you mentioned the potential, you know, continuous danger from a trade war, definitely heated up by Trump going forward between the US and China. But what about the mega trends of digital assets? Uh, we just heard this morning that New York Bank uh, Mellon did actually come out uh, and endorsed Bitcoin. We had Tesla buying 1.5 billion. What about the mega trend, potential mega trend of ESG investment and also our economy translating from a stakeholder activism to a stakeholder capitalism society. How do you see that? Are these megatrends well, the same? I'd say that, again, um, if you look at countries like China or Russia, they're the advocates of Bitcoins, obviously, because they want to... What better way or easier way than basically alter, or I'd just say avoid from being the excessive influence of you know, the capitalism that's built by you know the Western community. Um, so when you look at that, I think there could be, again, it goes back to what we were just talking about, but you know, geopolitical issues, political issues, that's going to get involved. Now, it's been a very good opportunity, I think, for Russia and China, thanks to Mr. Trump, uh, who basically burnt down all the bridges of you know the coalition of the West that's been built over the years. Uh, but I think Mr. Biden is going to try to, well, repatriate, you know, quite a lot of that. He's already doing that. So I think the doors is going to shut, start shutting down on, you know, the, the desire and the aim of uh, the Russians or, or the Chinese. But the dilemma here is that if and when we do that, and we will, um, that is also closing the door down 
on the biggest growth factor that we've seen, as we just talked about, twenty in the past twenty years, and it's not only the the you know growth perspective as well. It's also the the security management as well. And it's going to be cost management as well that is really going to hurt us. And uh, from that perspective, uh, again, I, I think we just have to ward off. I mean, can we wait for the normalization of China's policy agendas? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. No, exactly. Uh, I, we have to do our own thing in some respect, right? I mean, it, it's it's kind of strange, though. You know, when you ask, for example, um, you know, the the Chinese students uh, that comes around, or you know, the Chinese people as a whole that that's overseas, they can see things very clear. Of course, they can't say anything. Mm. Um, but you know, what they tell me is that if you're in China, you wouldn't know. So, I'd, I'd like to think that there will be some. A wake-up call, alternation that that could that could bring them to to light, and the government possibly will have alteration in the course which the Western society had hoped for twenty years ago. Um, but maybe I'm putting too high hopes. <laughs> yeah, maybe you're putting too high hopes. But it is. I mean, it just shows how intricate the issue is. That there are so many aspects to it uh, and unknowns, um, and one just has to almost navigate through it. And the question is, as you were saying, you know, do do you completely ignore it and do your own thing, or do you constantly try to adapt and adjust to possible scenarios, which is a huge cost factor on every sense, not even monetary, but even psychologically, also in terms of uh, you know breaking it down to the motivation of the team. I mean. It filters down even to people's mindsets, uh, whether or whether or not you have to consider it the whole time. Now, in terms of you didn't say anything about digital assets, what is your personal attitude? Also, having been a banker for so many years, how do you see cryptocurrencies, the entire DeFi space, uh, evolving? Do you believe in it? Are you are you are you taking it seriously? I am taking it obviously seriously because again, it could be a very useful tool for the newcomers, but. Again, um, I'm not sure if the world is ready at this point to welcome the newcomers, especially with the vested interest that's involved of the existing players. Mm -hmm. Especially when we have the resurgence of hegemony that's taking place with basically the Communist Party and the free world. And uh, from that perspective, I think there would be, I wouldn't say haltage, but at least a slowdown, a pace uh, that could take place uh, in these areas, in these arenas, I would say. Let me quickly interrupt the conversation to say thank you that you are here with me on the channel. If you do enjoy what I'm putting out, the in-depth kind of conversations, then why don't you subscribe and also hit the bell button so I can keep you informed with our newest releases. Thanks for that in advance. And let's get back to the conversation. Well, that's an interesting one. I have not heard that perspective uh, yet. Uh, so I'm going to follow up on on what you what you are thinking there. Now, in terms of you know how the crisis coming back to to our original original issue of the Olympics as well, Takashita San is. How do you see it? How does the crisis not impact only, let's say, the Olympics, but our way of living going forward on various levels? Well, you know, it's um, teleworkability. Um, recognition of how norm is very, very important and precious, uh, value changes. Uh, there's a lot of things that, that went on, but you know, I, I'd like to at least take a positive perspective that new norm could actually advance if we look at maybe 20, 30 years from now, 
at least we can say that quite a lot of good things came out from this. Uh, one is what we're doing right now. Telecommunications, you know, um, with much more ease and uh, much more frequency. As you know, Japan, for example, is a very serious conservative community in many places, like in case of universities or, you know, big companies and boardrooms and what have you. And, you know, first I had to raise my voice to, to say to the administration that there are things called Zoom, by the way. <laughs> we don't have to get stacked up in, you know, these rooms with everyone in there. And the most absurd thing, you know, that you can find is, you know, when people, some of the higher role people gather everybody in a relatively small room and say, let's be careful against COVID-19. <laughs> You're doing the opposite. Hello. You know, do something about it. But, you know, a lot of these older generations, um, I wouldn't say had the phobia, but almost had the phobia of changing things. And I've been saying, for example, let's introduce open, you know, uh, I'd say innovation, which is introducing various issues of different ideas from different companies and different industries, and let's mingle it together. And Japanese are pretty bad at doing that because they're very internally oriented. But I said, you know, if we don't do this now with COVID-19, if we don't change or change our system of having meetings now, what is going to induce a change? If we don't do this now, if COVID-19 is going to not move you, what's going to move you? Yeah, exactly. And and what was the reaction? Yeah, we have a uh, we have a Zoom uh, conference now. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Oh my God, you're such a rebel. And you know that, that I wanted to ask you that right from the beginning. You know, what was it like having lived in London, a totally mm. different? Um, I don't want to say value set, but a different mm. life, definitely mm. to the uh, con uh, conservative um, society you were describing during our conversation. How hard was it to come back for you? Well, I already knew these values. So I knew where the landmines were. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. And there are, like I said, positivity. There's not only the negative side. There's a lot of positivity in the Japanese governance style. Um, of course, you know, and also I was lucky to be a university professor. Yeah. If this was, I don't know, some managerial job in a typical traditional Japanese company. Difficult. Difficult. Maybe uh, my blood pressure would have been a lot higher than that. <laughs> That's without a speck of doubt. And that would be an unhealthy working place, is what you're trying to tell us, yeah. But they're the one who make, who who is the backbone. You know, the middle management in Japan are the backbone of our, of, of our system, in my opinion. They're the one who's really making this happen. It's the workers in the middle management that is creating the innovation and the growth and the future of Japan. Unfortunately, our, our top management rating is extremely low. Um You know, uh, IMD, the uh, Swiss uh, uh, business school, have uh, they come up with every two years, I think, about the international top management ranking. But I think we rank something like 55 out of 61 countries yeah. on top management. But I would say this is a very, very encouraging number. The reason is we're the third largest you know, economy in the world with, as you just said at the very beginning, you know, we are very good at innovative products and we have a lot of wonderful, you know, technology. And we are able to do this in spite of the fact that, you know, our top management is ranked 55th out of 61 countries. 
So if we improve this area, just imagine what room there is for Japan to continuously grow. So I'm plus, plus, if I may interject, um, plus the equality issue with women being more and more recognized and also included, you have like a double whammy on the positive side. Yes. Um, you know, the wording off of prejudice again, uh, against women, I think, or I would like to think, is going to ward off the prejudice, period. Prejudice against men, like I say, on a personal issues, Japan are being, uh, men are the ones who's being segregated, you know, or especially prejudice against foreigners. Okay. And these kind of things, if that gets lowered down, at least on a societal level as a barrier, then that would also induce a lot of diversity in our employment side, which is the biggest headache of Japan because we're the country that's aging the fastest with still the lowest birth rate amongst OECD nations. Mm -hmm. So we have a resolution to that as well. So again, maybe, you know, going back, going ahead 20, 30 years, we look back at this and say, as you said, this could have been a catalyst for us to lower or at least diminish, you know, this is this strange type of prejudice um, that we had against what we had before of our values uh, against be it women or against against senior citizens or against foreigners might have been a good jab in the arm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, moving into the 21st century, if to just to put it bluntly, perhaps on, on the point. Um, let's talk a little bit um, about two things that I'm personally very curious about, and that is the concept of shame and honor and the concept of apologizing in the Japanese culture. Let's start with apologizing. Can you explain it from an insider point of view to us, um, what it is and why it is so important in your culture? If you ask me, I need to learn one Japanese word. I would say it's sumimasen. Literally translated is I'm sorry. Yes, sumimasen. You can, you can use it for excuse me. You can use it for thank you. You can use it for anything, almost. And this is a very much of an apologetic culture in Japan. Mm -hmm. This is a, a, a country where if you come back from your one week of honeymoon, you don't say, oh, I had a great time in Hawaii. That was great. No, 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 no. The first thing you also say after coming back from a flu in a hospital, back to work, is the same. The first thing you say is, sumimasen. And it goes back to what we were talking earlier, which is small group valuation. You may have given some kind of uh, uh, extra work to those people while you were having your vacation. Yep. You know, So you go back to apologize to make sure that you blend in with the group. You work as a group. You are a member of the group and you are thought of as part of the group. Yeah, but one so, thing is, exactly, I mean, if I may interject there, one thing is to be empathetic and kind of considerate, hey, I know I had a great time on my honeymoon, but that meant more work to you. And, you know, to, to find kind of that empathy is wonderful, is wonderful. But when it comes to basically canceling out your, your personal life or needs and it, apologize about everything um, that is just about you and your ego, that's maybe going too much the other way. This is what you're saying. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it goes too far at, oftentimes. I mean, um, that's one of the reasons that, you know, the, the happiness of the Japanese public is extremely low. We may be doing very well in per capita income. Uh, we might be one of the wealthiest nations in the world with a very high technology, but are people happy? 
The answer is no. This is a country that that utilizes the lowest ratio of paid work holidays, you know, um, and yet people are yearning for holidays, but they can't take it because of the societal brace. So that is why I'm always saying that we have to alter our minds or at least loosen up. I'm not saying we're going to change. We can't do that, but at least loosen up a little bit more. Yeah, go to Denmark, the happiest country in the world. Just learn something from the Danes and what they're doing. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, okay, to wrap up our conversation, Takashita-san, you've been so generous with your time. I know you're super, super busy. Is your personal key learnings in general. Um, let's do them two-pronged, if I may. One is uh, about the crisis itself you've lived through since the beginning of 2020, what your key learnings are. And the other one, you know, you're general, you're a professor. What are the key learnings you would say to your students or your children in general uh, during the course of your career, which was which is a great career, um, um, you'd, you'd kind of pass on? Well, um, what I've been telling my students, um, is that they're basically gutted because they can't come to the school, they can't meet their friends, they can't interact, and they can't have the normal ceremonies. But I tell them that, hey, you know, look at it from this way. I'm dean of the School of Management, but I've never seen professors so desperate to make sure that you guys have a good web ceremony, for example. They'd be arguing over the days. Had this been a normal time, we wouldn't have noticed that. It tells you that you're very much loved and cared for. And these extraordinary situations make us realize how important the norm was. That we took it for granted, but it's not. It's so valuable. So maybe it's a good learning point for us that we're learning right now about how important our normal life will be in the future to realize that, you know, you're all surrounded by people who really care for you. And I wouldn't have noticed that if we didn't have this corona. So what I've learned from this and what I tell to my students is that this is a very good learning opportunity. I know it's hard, it's harsh, it's not fun, but there is a very good lesson to be learned about our future. And the values, do you think the value is shifting? Oh yeah, definitely. Towards? In a more positive sense to understand that, you know, the, the actual everyday little things that we used to do is actually very, very precious. Um, and that, you know, again, things that we take for granted may not be as easy as we thought. And also, I think, you know, um, change is always a chance. Whether you want to consider this as a horrible thing and, you know, you can cry your wits off or think that this is a change which brings out opportunity because every change, there's an opportunity. So if you look at it from a positive, and you, one has to look at it from the positive side. Um, so this is another thing that I've been telling uh, uh, our students. No, I think this is so spot on. I mean, my series is called From Crisis to Creation. And because this is, this is how I live, you know, whatever 
tough situation you find yourself in, A, there is a reason, and B, that means that there is something else that can be created out of it. And if you, if, if you look how much, uh, you know, attention all of a sudden, as you were just saying, with regards to the, the, the professors towards the students, attention is being all of a sudden really put and focused on the students, what they do and how they do it. There is, you know, a lot more potential for creativity and growth and a push where they say, hey, you know, just keep it going and keep it going to that direction and perhaps with a bit of a tuber charge as well. Yeah, that's true. That's a good good analogy, I think. Yeah. Takashita-san, domo arigato. Please correct me if I said that wrong. Pleasure. No. Yes. Mm, I, I'm bowing to you. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to have you after all these years where we've been huddling up together on the set at CNBC to now from Zurich uh, to Shizuoka uh, in Japan to have you so close by thanks to technology. And yeah, uh, total pleasure. And thank you for all of your insights. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you, my dear Mentory TV community. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Takashita-san as much as I did. We talked about... Uh discrimination, the Olympics, the Japanese economy, and also, of course, what the pandemic may or may not shift in the long run, be it in terms of economics, but also our value set. So I hope you're going to join us for the next conversation as well. See you soon. Bye. I'm Rachel Corpus, an angel communicator, psychic medium, and host of the Angel Talk podcast. This show is meant to help you remember who you are, a limitless being with shoes and socks on. And along the way, we'll connect to people on the other side and experts in the field like authors, healers, animal communicators, and more. Listen to all my shows at Mind Body Spirit FM or wherever you get your podcasts.